Hi again. I haven't been around for a while, so it was really good to be back and uh, home, home in LA and home here. Um, I think Barry told you that the next five weeks I'm doing this course called Friendly Fire. Um, I think he told you a few times because he, <clears throat> he liked the idea of it because it's basically people attacking me online and I'm going to respond to them. Um, so we're going to kind of bring some of that into this, but not today because I, you know, I don't know, feels a bit weird talking about myself. So I thought instead I would reflect on something that happened to me a few weeks ago where a friend I met in this uh, bar and he was saying, Pete, I want you on my podcast because I want to pin down what you believe, right? This is the problem, Pete. You know, people listen to you for years and they have no idea what you believe. People have read your books, they've listened to the podcast, they've, they've listened to all the stuff online, and still no one has any idea. And I get this from my friends as well. What do you believe? So this guy's like, you're getting on my podcast, we're gonna pin this down. And so we had a conversation, okay, I'll tell you what I believe, right? I believe that I don't know what I believe, right? That knowing what you believe is profoundly difficult. Mostly it's obscure to us. It's something that we don't like to look at. <clears throat> and we try to defend ourselves <clears throat> from actually looking at what we believe. Um, recently, when I say recently, a lot of years ago, I wrote this book of fairy tales. I haven't done anything with it, but recently a comic book artist approached me and is starting to put them into a comic. So hopefully um, that will happen sometime next year. But I wrote this and it's called Enduring Love. And I called it Enduring Love because love is so difficult to endure. It's horrific. Um, it's so painful and awful and you have to have a lot of strength and a lot of courage to survive it. Many of us have to get married so as to get rid of it. Um, <clears throat> because it's so, so difficult, you don't know what to do. You can't think about everything else. So get married, take care of that, and then you can get on with life. So enduring love, it's like, it's a, obviously it's got a play on the, on, on, on the term. And it's, it's all set in the uh, lonely forest. Uh, it's kind of from a quote, um, if a tree falls in a lonely forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? And I like this phrase, lonely forest. So the whole thing's set there. And one of the stories is about this idea of belief. And it's about a, um, a little field mouse. And this little field mice used to live in the 100 acre wood, but with the recession, everything went to pieces, right? The whole honey industry collapsed and Winnie the Pooh moved out. It was the house, you know, nest prices went through the roof. Uh, you couldn't get a hollow in a tree for love nor money. It was just a nightmare, right? So this little field mice finds out that there are jobs in the lonely forest. So he moves his little hutch, he goes to the lonely forest, and he, he applies for the job. Now, it's nothing fancy. This is nothing great. It's, a, it's tough times out there. It's just a factory floor job. It's putting uh, nuts into acorns and checking for defects. So he's just sitting there on the conveyor belt. But beggars can't be choosers, right? So he moves into a cheap part of the forest, settles down. Well, what happens next is quite beautiful. He falls in love. He falls in love with this beautiful squirrel. Now, interspecies relationships are still a bit dodgy in the, in the lonely forest, but they just put caution to the wind. They don't care. The love is greater than social conventions. And they start to hang out all the time. They're always partying. They're always going out for walks. But this little field mouse is very insecure. And he's always asking the squirrel, do you love me? And the squirrel always answers, of course I love you. 
I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day, and I shall love you until the day that I die. But this never satisfied the little mouse. He always felt maybe she's lying. Maybe she's just saying that. Maybe she wants to break up with me. Right? So he gets more and more distraught and depressed. And one day he's on the factory floor putting the nuts into the shells and the slimy frog, the uh, foreman, walks past, right? And he sees the little field mouse is sad and says, listen, let's go out for a smoke break and let's have a chat. So they go out the back, they light up their cigarettes, take a smoke. The slimy frog says, what's up? Well, the field mice tells him, I'm in love, but I don't know if she loves me. Slimy frog says, well, have you asked her? Yes, I've asked her. And what does she say? Well, she says that she loves me. She loves me the, the day that she met me. She loves me this very day and that she'll love me until the day that I die. But there you go. But what if she's lying? What if she really wants to break up with me? What if she's only saying that? So the slimy frog thinks for a moment. Goes, you know what? In the center of the lonely forest, there's an enchanted lake. It's called the Lake of Truth. And it's said that if you drink from the lake, you can hear the inner thoughts of the person you're with or the animal you're with in this circumstance. Well, the field mouse is elated. This is a great idea. I'll bring her for a walk, go down past this Lake of Truth, drink some of the water, and I'll ask her. And then I will hear what she really thinks. So Saturday comes around. He says, let's go for a walk. They go down into the center of the forest to the Lake of Truth, and the little field mouse says, oh, I'm parched. I'm absolutely parched. So he scurries down to the water, sips some of it, then runs back up to the squirrel and says, I just want to ask you one more time. Just one more time. Do you love me? And the squirrel looks at him and says, of course I love you. Loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day, and I shall love you till the day that I die. So then he waits and waits. Sure enough, he hears her inner thoughts. Of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day. I shall love you till the day that I die. The field mouse is so excited. He's so happy. The jealousy disappears. He has such a wonderful day with her, and everything is beautiful, roses, light. But after about a week, the little field mouse disappears. Doesn't turn up for work on Monday. Doesn't turn up for work on Tuesday. Eventually, on Wednesday, he comes in saying something about being sick. But the slimy frog doesn't believe him. Says, come on, let's go out, have another cigarette. So they go out, and they light up. The frog says, what's up? What's really up? And the field mice says, well, turns out the squirrel, well, she was having an affair. What? Says the slimy frog. Yeah, this other mice with nicer fur, shinier nose. And the frog said, you took her to the magic lake? Yeah, the lake of truth. Yes. And you heard her inner thoughts? Yes. And her inner thoughts were that she loved you? Yes. Well, was it a broken lake? No. Was it a cursed lake? No. Was it a lying lake? No. You don't understand. She didn't love me. She only thought that she did. Now, what can this mean? I was inspired to write this from a film called What Do Women Want? Have you ever seen it with Mel Gibson? Um, where he basically, because Freud had this, no, it died with this question, what do women want? 
and it was to do with desire and the feminine. And so there's this movie where Mel Gibson, I think he's in a, 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 a bath and then something falls into the bath, he gets an electric shock and he's now able to hear the inner thoughts of women. So he is a man who knows what women want. But this is not the Freudian insight. The Freudian insight is we don't know what we want, male or female. So if I hear your inner thoughts, I still don't know what you want. Because you can often be fooling yourself. You may think you love someone when you don't, or you might think you don't love someone when you do. Um, the last person to ask about what you believe is yourself. We don't just lie to other people, we, we lie to ourselves. There's a little story about this Irish guy who um, goes to this pub every week, and he always orders four pints of Guinness. And barman never asks anything. Just pours four pints of Guinness, this guy Seamus just drinks them all. Four pints, walks out. Does this every week for a year. Eventually he comes in and he orders three pints of Guinness. And the barman thinks to himself, I'm gonna ask. So he says, listen Seamus, I noticed that every week for the last year you come in here, you order four pints of Guinness, you drink them and you leave. And this week you order three pints of Guinness, what's going on? And Seamus says, well, he says, I actually have two brothers and a father, and they're, they're in different parts of the world. And so every week I have a drink, one for me, one for my first brother, one for my second brother, one for my father. But sadly, my father passed away, and so I have a drink for the living, you know, myself, my first and my second brother. And so the barman says, well, I'm sorry for your loss, that's a beautiful ritual. And Seamus says, thank you, drinks his three Guinnesses, leaves. Well, this happens for another year, and then Seamus comes in and he orders two pints of Guinness. The barman, you know, pours the pints and then he says, I don't mean to pry, Seamus, I don't mean to pry, but um, something happened to one of your brothers. And Seamus says, no, 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 don't worry about it. No, he says, of course not. He says, doctor's orders, I've had to stop drinking, right? Now, Seamus is engaged in certain activity that he is intellectually disavowing, right? He's engaged in something that he's not letting himself imagine. This is something that we, we all do to greater or lesser extents. We, we, we do things, we engage in systems that intellectually we critique, or we engage in practices that we disavow. One more story and I'll go on, but it's just one of my favorites. This guy goes to this minister, um, he's, he, he knocks on her door on a Sunday afternoon, he's sweating, he's tired, he's, he, when she opens the door, he's crying, and the minister says, what, what's wrong? And he says, well, there's a family down the road, and um, they, you know, they've lived in this house for 15 years, but he's just as lost his job. Uh, the woman's too sick to work. Uh, her elderly mother lives with them, and uh, they've got four kids, Right? They don't have any money to pay the rent. They've been paying the rent faithfully for years, every month, every month on time. This month, they've only got half the money. They want two weeks, and yet the landlord won't let them wait. He's gonna kick them out onto the street. We've got to do something. So the minister says, okay, I'll get some money from the, from the coffers in the church. And she says, by the way, how do you know them? And he looks at her and says, oh, I'm the landlord. Right? So we can participate in systems and get very upset by them, and yet we are what? creates the system. We're part of the system that's the problem. You know, we may care about homelessness or something, but don't realize that homelessness is the result of a problem in the very structure of the society that we operate in, that they are the truth of some problem in our society we're not looking at. Um, now, this sounds weird because we always think, what do you believe? But before, before we, we argue whether our beliefs are right or wrong, we actually have to do the really difficult work of coming to know them. There's people who don't believe in ghosts until you turn the lights out late at night and they're on their own, and then they think there's something under the bed or something in the closet. 
right? Probably ask some of us here. You don't believe in ghosts, but you do. You do believe in ghosts. You know, but you don't believe it here because that's ridiculous. You've repressed it. Some people believe that everybody hates them or some people, we have like crazy beliefs and we repress them. If you talk to a kid in therapy and you go, do you like daddy? And the kid goes, I love daddy. I love daddy. I think daddy's great. Then you ask the teddy bear, uh, do you like daddy? Oh, no, no, no. I don't like daddy at all. Daddy's an idiot, right? It's not the kid who needs the therapy. It's the teddy bear, right? The kid's fine. The teddy bear's got the problems. Now, what's the issue? The issue is the teddy bear is the repressed truth of the child. The child has this belief, I love the parents, but they've repressed the, tr the true belief. They've repressed that. That's, they've put that into their body, and it comes out in various symptoms. And, you know, for the child, the teddy bear is a symptom. If you want to know how a child is, ask their, their teddies. Um, their teddies know more than the child. So this idea that actually it really takes a lot of effort there's people who say to me, I've used this example before, but I counter it all the time. Um, I don't believe in hell. Does that mean I'm going to go there? Right? You've let go of this belief consciously, but it still continues to operate within you at, a, at an unconscious level. Um, and, and those are the beliefs that really matter. Those are the ones that kind of cause lots of problems in your life. Uh, and those are, the, those are the ones that we kind of, we're, we don't hide from each other. We hide from ourselves. So the first thing I want to say about belief is it's really difficult to come to terms and come to know what we believe. I know, I know ministers who don't believe. I know one guy in particular, the guy who was having the conversation with me, where he, he was a minister for years and he believed consciously, but deep down he didn't. But he was repressing all of that and it was coming out in his family relationships, his relationships with his parents, his relationships with his, with his partner. And it was only when he was able to leave the church and take a year out that he was able to come to know what he believed, right? that he was able to come to accept some of the things that were within him. And there are people who don't believe, who say they're, they're atheists, as I say, but when the lights go out, they believe in all sorts of supernatural things, walking around their house, bumping on the windows at night. Right? So consciously they say they don't believe, and yet something is functioning within them. You know that example that I did, I've talked about it before, of the Darren Brown, I stole off Darren Brown, where I, I spoke to a group of secular individuals who don't believe in angels or demons or any of that kind of stuff. Then I got them to bring up a picture of someone they loved, and then you know, brought out a 16th century satanic prayer uh, curse and asked them to say the curse over the person they loved. Nobody's me. I'm going like, I'm not telling you what I believe. You guys don't believe this stuff, you know? Um, you don't believe, like, you can say it over me. It's something I ripped off the internet and, and changed a few words to make it sound more sinister. Like, I have, I, do I think that that's going to affect anything? No. Now, somebody else might, I mean, in LA, people do think that kind of stuff, but this is in Belfast where nobody believes in any of that. Um, and they still wouldn't say it. And you go, well, maybe you do believe it deep down in your body, because the thing is, before you come to think critically, you are full of beliefs. If you look at children, you're, 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 you're inundated with rituals and ideas and thoughts and stories. You're, you're placed in a language, you're placed in a culture, you're given all of this stuff. And so by the time you come to think critically, which might be at 12 or 15 or 20 years old, you've got so much in you already. And then you either have a choice of just doubling down and arguing for what you've been given and saying that's the truth, or that more difficult process of kind of looking at the stuff that is within. But most of it is not transparent to you. It's lived out of you. That's why, <clears throat> I don't know if it's the Mennonites who say, but there is a Christian tradition where if you ask somebody what they believe, they say, ask my parents 
or ask my, ask my friends, or ask my enemies. And they kind of say that, well, I'm the last person to tell you what I believe because, you know, I hardly glimpse it. The second thing about beliefs um, is that, you know, your beliefs don't necessarily, you don't have to commit yourself to thinking your beliefs connect with reality itself. You know, part of coming to look at your beliefs is, is just say, for example, coming to go, I do believe in ghosts. I mean, not intellectually, not, not consciously, but, but look what happens when the lights go out. Look what happened when I'm alone. So then you can look at your belief, bring it to the surface, and then kind of go, well, you know, I think it's a bit crazy. Uh, so in one sense, you're weirdly saying, I don't know if I believe my belief. I don't know if it connects with reality, but it's still there, it's still my belief. You know, your, your beliefs can connect with reality. Uh, there's this story of a guy goes into a therapist and says, I think I'm a moth. And the therapist goes, what, what you think? Literally, you're a little moth flying around. Yeah, he says, terrible. He says, is that not devastating your relationships and your life? Yes. You know, nobody understands me. My family life's falling apart. I can't keep a job down. It's absolutely terrible. And the therapist goes, well, you came to the right place. I can help you. Um, we'll set up an appointment for tomorrow. And the guy says, you're a therapist? He says, yeah, I'm a therapist. Did you not know that when you came in? He says, oh, no, I had no idea. He says, well, why did you come in? He said, oh, I was just outside and the light was on. So you know, your, your craziness can maybe lead you to kind of the right place and the right belief, but if you're lucky. But, you know, that's just by the by. Our beliefs generally, I say, come to us through the language we've been given, the culture we're in, the way we've been brought up. I say, we repress the more unhealthy ones. You know, I think everyone of the opposite sex hates me or something like that. That belief, of course, no one consciously believes that, but lots of people believe it. Someone's out partying and they're always talking about how much their money they're making. They're always showing off their car, you know, like driving up right outside the club. They're, they're talking about what they do in LA and their job. And, you know, you think and they think that they love themselves. And then you do a little bit of poking and you find out that they hate themselves. They don't know that. Most of the people around them don't know that. In fact, they think the very opposite. Reaction formation. Often, we hide our beliefs in the opposite. So the person's out partying all the time. Looks like they're they're always chatting people up. It looks like they're so confident. But actually, it takes a lot of work for them to finally go. I do all of that because I actually hate myself. I despise myself. I can't stand to be alone. I have to always be out. But that can take years to discover. We hide these things from ourselves, and they don't necessarily connect with reality. Admitting what you believe is not admitting that that's what you think about the universe. It's just admitting that's what's within you. That's what's going on within you. And then the third thing I wanted to say to this guy, and maybe I will on his podcast, is I don't necessarily want to share my beliefs. Many of our beliefs are very weird, bizarre, and distasteful. Right? The last thing we want to say is what we really believe. I love animals. Well, I don't really, because I eat them, right? I can't, I don't, I mean, I know what terrible things happen, and still I eat them, but I want to believe that I love animals. That's the belief that I have, but it covers over the fact that I don't care, right? I want to believe that I care about what's going on in some far-off country, but most of the time I don't care at all, um, because what do I do about it? No, I just write some tweet. You know, something like saying, and think that's it. You know, like I, I, I that's that helps me continue to have an image of myself. Because the thing is, I hang around with myself almost all of the time. So I want to have a good image of myself. 
I want to kind of think of myself in a good way. This connects with what I spoke about last time I was here, you know, where I said we all live between what we have and what we would like to have and who we are and who we'd like to be. And we all live in the in-between of that. Well, yeah, we always have these images of who we would like to be. There's that story of the king who comes back to his castle and says, there's a beggar at the gates, kill him, get rid of him, put him out of the city. I don't care what you do. Do you know that I'm such a kind and compassionate man that I cannot bear to look upon such suffering, right? See, I'm so kind and compassionate that I don't want to know what happens in the meat industry, you know, because I love animals. I'm so kind and compassionate, I don't, know, I don't want to know where this was made because I love kids, right? I'm so kind and compassionate that I don't want to know where the chocolate that I eat comes from. I don't want to know where those cocoa beans come from. I don't want to know who picks them because I'm such a kind and compassionate person that that would distress me. We, there's things we know and there's things we don't know and there's the things that we know we don't know. Um, and, and there's lots of things that I know that I don't know and that I hide from myself because I want to hide my own beliefs and my own desires from me. I want to keep them from myself. The first thing for us before, as I say, we can talk about whether a belief is right or wrong, is simply being honest about what we believe, distasteful and weird as they are. Um, the last thing I want to do is tell strangers about them. You can tell your loved ones. You tell a therapist. You could tell someone you know who you trust what you believe. But, um, but and I don't want to go on a podcast and talk about it. You know, what do you believe? Well, I believe that nobody really matters as much as I do. You know, I believe that like dogs are great and all other animals are tasty. I believe that, you know, I, I, you know, I, believe, I believe crazy stuff. Right? You know, I said, what, you want me to go on? And then you want me to argue that they're right? No, most of my beliefs are ridiculous. The last thing I, because I was thinking, you know, people think that because you have beliefs, you want to argue that they're right. No, my beliefs are mental, most of them. Last thing I want to do is convince anybody else that they're right. I'm trying to convince myself that they're not. Right? Um, you know, so I, this whole thing doesn't, it, it amazes me. Now, what, there's a, this verse in the Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I love this. Because there's this idea that, you know, that we, we all kind of think the opposite. Don't know the truth. Put the truth down. Don't look at your true beliefs, your true desires. Repress them. Push them down. Let them become a sore back or heart disease or, you know, whatever. Just push them down. That's okay. Make them into a migraine. You can take pills for that, right? Um, you know, we want to, we don't, we don't want to bring the truth up. We want to keep it down. But there's this idea, you see it in psychoanalysis as well, and in Christianity talks about it, but you should know the truth. If you bring the truth to the surface, if you're able to be honest with yourself about your beliefs and your desires, that's often the first step to being freed from their oppressive power. By bringing them up to light, you can dissipate their strength. If you believe in ghosts, be honest about it. Bring it to the light of day. And sometimes that's enough to dissipate the power. Just looking at it and then going, yeah, I think that's just because like when I was young, I read all those crazy stories and watched that terrible horror film and, and, and that weird thing happened. And, and you know, you start to work it through and then it dissipates. And sometimes you have to do more work than that. But you do it in, in community of grace. And this is the other notion that connects with Christianity, actually, but this notion of grace, that we can only be honest about these things in a place where we are accepted. And we accept that we are accepted. Paul Tillich's definition of grace is the acceptance that you're accepted. Because I can accept you, but if you can't accept that you're accepted, it's not going to work. So there is this interesting thing where you have to accept that you're accepted. And when you can accept that 
that you're accepted, no matter what. You can be much more honest about your beliefs and your desires and your craziness. And I know you're all crazy. I'm looking at you right now. I know some of you. You're all mental. If I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't talk to you. If you knew everything there was to know about me, you wouldn't listen to me. So, you know. Um, but, but in a community of grace, where we're accepted for who we are, you can bring the truth to the light of day, to the surface. And in doing that, you rob it of its power. One of the first things you do in AA is you admit to something that you're probably denying a lot of your life. One of the defense mechanisms in, for, for people with addictions is often denial, where you deny something. And of course, the answer is, well, everyone will deny it. You know, Peter, are you an alcoholic? No. Well, that's what an alcoholic would say. Well, I'm definitely not an alcoholic. Well, that's definitely what an alcoholic would say, right? You, know, you can't win, right? But, but often denial works in a sense if you deny something that no one's asked you to deny. You're at a party and you go, oh, you know, there's not much alcohol here. I'm going to go out and get some more. I'm not an alcoholic or anything. Well, I never said you were. You know, why are you denying something that I never asked you to deny? Or on Facebook, if someone's telling you they're happy all the time, why are you telling me you're happy all the time? It's weird. Why are you putting all these pictures of Instagram on how great your life is? Usually if you're really happy, the last thing you're thinking about is taking a picture of how you're really happy. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes if you're always having to tell people how great your relationship is online, it might be because you're telling yourself. Because whenever you deny something to me, you're not denying it to me, you maybe you're denying it to yourself. I'm not an alcoholic or anything, why are you telling me? I'm not telling you, I'm telling myself. Why are you telling yourself? Because I think I might be, right? But that's then come, so in AA, the first thing you do is you tell your truth. You bring the truth to light. That's before any of the 12 steps, anything like that. It's just in a community of grace of people who accept you absolutely for who you are. And, you know, I don't know much about AA at all, but, so, but that never stops me from talking like an expert on something, you know? In fact, the less you know about something often, the more you can talk about it. There's an old proverb that says, if you're ever going to critique a book, make sure you never read it, because it will only prejudice your opinion, right? Um, but, uh, but I could imagine that it takes years sometimes of just turning up, turning up, turning up. I did see a film a few nights ago where this guy kept turning up. Oh, Hancock, about like his field superhero, where he was, goes to prison and he goes to the AA every week and he's just sitting there and he says, I'll pass, I'll pass, I'll pass. Um, you know, I'm sure that can happen until maybe a point where you accept that you're accepted, that you can speak your truth in that place, where nobody's asking you to change. And then if you're able to do that, then you have these 12 steps. You have different things you can do that might be useful for you. But the very first step is to not, want to, not change at all, just simply to admit your truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Um, so, yeah. That, 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 and that. Oh, yeah, and we'll say one thing then about parables, and then we can finish up. Because I've got to go to my house to do this course, and some of you are coming with me, I think, a couple of you. Oh, by the way, my friend Bruce is here, who's just moved to L.A., who's a philosopher. Hey! He's written very good books, you know, and all of that. I'm sure we'll someday speak here, if you're up for it. Um, just introducing him in the middle of the talk, as you do. Uh, so, yeah, um, this is what I see in, in the Gospels as well. Um, there's like a lovely segue. You didn't notice that right into the Bible because it's Sunday morning. <laughs> wow. That's, that's what's called a pro move. You know, I'm saying one thing and then, wow, right in. Seamless, right? Was that the gin in there? Yeah, oh, I'm just getting started. Lock the doors. Lock the doors. Um, 
Yeah, they, you know, and you, you look at the Gospels, you got, it's very hard to know what Jesus believes. There's no teachings there. All the teachings are self-contradictory or contradict the other thing. Yeah, sell all you have, give to the poor, go back, tell no one, da-da-da, you know, born, be born again, and all of these different weird things that are very difficult to understand. Um, and parables, parables don't, like, kneel things down. Mythologies kneel things down. A myth is a narrative that tells you why you're here, what you're doing, where you're going, what it's all about. But parables uh, disrupt. They're projectiles that break into our neat worlds. They bring things up. They confront us with the things we'd rather repress. So, for example, when you talk about a good Samaritan, you know, Samaritans were, were seen uh, in that tradition as, you know, bad or evil or less than. So this story of the Good Samaritan is kind of drawing out where, you know, you think everyone's equal, you think, you think you're liberated and all of that, but I'm gonna tell this story and you're gonna be surprised because they're, your, they're the enemy. Somewhere deep down, you don't like the Samaritans and maybe you don't admit it to yourself, but you don't. And so this parable kind of brings that to the surface. Parables are incredibly good at getting around our defense mechanisms and presenting us with our truth presenting us with our beliefs, pre presenting us with our desires, not so that we despair, but so that we can look at those things, begin to work through them, and maybe let them go. Um, Marx famously, in, you know, whenever he said, religion is the opiate of the people, which is one of the phrases we know very well from him. But he goes on to say, religion is the heart of a heartless nation, the soul of a soulless condition. Um, and and he kind of paints this quite beautiful picture of religion as, as something that people do in order to get away from their suffering. But then he says, you know, we must, uh, religion is the imaginary flowers on the chains of our oppression. We must get rid of the imaginary flowers so that we can see the chains, not so that we despair, but so that we can break the chains and pick living flowers. This is kind of what an intervention is. For someone, the intervention is where you say, you know, you think this, this drinking or these drugs are helping you to get rid of your suffering. And they probably did at one stage. That was the solution to a problem. But they've become their own problem. You have to get, give up that. You're going like, why? So that I see the chains of my life. So I see all of the problems. I'm like, yeah. But that's the first step. You see it. And then the second step is you can begin to do something about it, make amends, fix things. And if you're able to do that, you can break those chains and pick living flowers and have real pleasure and experience real depth in life. In the same way, many of us are chained by our beliefs and our desires that we cannot admit to ourselves, let alone anyone else. But they fester, they hurt us, they come out in our bad backs, they come out in our fatigue, they come out in our migraines, they come out in our shouting uh, to, at our kids for no reason or crying for no reason in the car over a silly advert. They come out. You know what you repress and your beliefs find ways to express themselves. And one of the challenges we have is creating a space where we can be honest with ourselves and each other in a community of grace. Bring that stuff to the surface so that we can rob it of its sting, so that we can, can find freedom. And this is, in a sense, what confessional prayer is. Confessional prayer is where you, you speak the inner moans and groans of your being. You speak it out. That's, why, that's what love letters are in many ways. Like the best love letters are the love letters where somehow you connect with, or break up letters as well. Like these, these moments where we are so honest with, with the inner moans and groans of our being and we put it onto a page. And what do we do with that? We read that letter 10, 20 times. 
and sometimes we send it and sometimes we don't because it was never meant for the other person. It was meant for ourselves. In being able to bring that to the surface, that level of honesty, we find that we're lifted in some kind of way. That's why there's a book called Why Do Women Write More Letters Than They Send? by a guy called Darian Leader, a psychoanalyst. And it's about this because they notice that there's a lot of women, more maybe than men supposedly, will write letters they never send. And so it's like, why, why? Well, because the letter was a way of bringing to the surface the inner tensions and desires and pain and beliefs onto a page that then finds freedom. So in one sense, the letter, Lacan says, always finds its destination because its destination is you. So whether you send it or not, you don't know. And the person you send it to might only read it once because it's not strangely often as important to them as it is to yourself. Confessional prayer is a similar thing where we, we try to be honest. We don't say, oh, I pray blessings on the, the leaders of our country and I pray blessings on my neighbor. I don't like my neighbor. My neighbor always steals my lawnmower and I don't like the leaders of the country. I always write nasty tweets about them online, right? I don't care. A confessional prayer is when you say that. You go, you know what? You know, I'm, I'm hiding things. I'm hiding things from myself and from other people. I'm going to name those things, and that's going to be painful. But actually, that's, that's, the, road to, that's the road to healing. One final thing, and I'll stop, promise. When you go to a therapist, you go there because there is this trap door beside you, and the trap door is full of monsters and darkness and bad stuff, and you're teetering on the edge, and it's horrible, and you just want to escape all of that darkness. You want to escape all of those monsters. You want them to pull you away. But of course, what does, therapist do? What does a therapist do, an analyst do? Well, they kind of push you in <laughs> very nicely. Um, they say that, you know, you go, to, you go to analysis because you want to escape all of that stuff. You don't want to go near that. You want to shut that thing down. You want to lock that trapdoor, and you want to get on with your life. Fix me, you know, make me a bit of a better person in my relationships. Can you just help me kind of get over my work? I don't want to go anywhere near that. That's what's causing me depression is I'm so close to that stuff. It's like, well, actually, you know what? That's where you're going to have to go. That's where you're going to have to go. If you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. And if you want to lose your life, you'll find it. Um, and so, in a sense, that's what we all have to do. Look at our beliefs, be honest with ourselves, create deserts in the oasis of our lives where we can, we can come to be honest with ourselves and each other with grace, saturating the whole thing. And then we shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free.